0: Accessed, entry 045.RV2210, certificate number 33047, The Anarchist
2: Cookbook. Did you know if you mixed equal parts of gasoline and frozen orange juice concentrate, you can make napalm? No, I did not know that. Is that true? That's right. One can make all kinds of explosives using simple household items. Really? If one was so inclined...
1: Ken, Would you describe yourself as a counterculture person?
0: Uh, I would describe myself as, let me see. I'm a white, yeah, affluent father of two, right? From a fairly conservative Christian background, right?
1: yeah, i'm I'm an icon of the counterculture. Uh-huh. counterculture is how you would describe yourself. Yeah, I would too. I would say you're you're a voice of the um the disenfranchised. The new left. The new left. <laughs> the <laughs> new, new left. Uh, when I was young, I identified very strongly with this, with the counterculture movement of the 60s, the new left, as you described, the, um, the activist, sort of hippie, anti-war, anti-capitalist, anti-American dream. Mostly just
0: for left. the aesthetic. You loved the way the hippies dressed. You loved Whoa. you loved all the fringe so
1: much, so sexy those the, hippies. The
0: beads. <laughs> and uh, you were like, I don't believe in any of this. No, uh, I, I have posters of Barry Goldwater on my wall, but I just want to dress like these
1: I guys. Dress like these guys and still be a member of the John Birch Society. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, my dad was born in 1921, so I had older brothers and sisters who were baby boomers, and although I was a member of the subsequent generation. I I still, you know, I felt like at least in the the early 1980s that a lot of those concerns were still very real. We were still locked in an unwinnable Cold War. A lot of the forces of kind of conservative uh, traditional American culture and this active left that was seeking more social justice, more equal rights for women, um, you know, a, a kind of a different take on industrial colonial capitalism. The, the, those felt like very that current was, That ideas. was your Reagan era. You were still a... In the in the Reagan era, that was that was where I was coming from. And, and you were, were
0: the parents on Family Ties.
1: I was. And I, I was the kids I was on the Family boring Ties. Boring parents on Family Ties, while you were the exciting young Alex P. Keaton trying to make some cash.
0: My stock market portfolio. Your
1: skinny little my sus- gray tie my suspenders. <laughs>
0: my, my Patrick Bateman books. I. It's funny because you and I are fairly close to the same age. Close, but but, I, but there
1: is a little, uh, just enough of a generation.
0: Gap. And also, I'm thinking by virtue of you having kind of old parents and older siblings that are plausible Woodstock generation kids, like to me, that's my parents. And I, I, I was born with this unbridgeable gulf between, you know, I was born four years after the Beatles broke up, but it seemed like an eternity ago, you know, all that was the oldies station. I I have no connection
1: to it. And that was, a. it was difficult in the 1980s to navigate that because. Because the '80s were when the baby boomer generation first started to really wallow in nostalgia about itself.
0: Sure, they got *Nick at Night*, and then it yeah. was it was all over, but the
1: shouting well, Everything and the went to hell. Thirty-something television show and the oh, big chill. You know, this was the this was the start of this sort of. Hey, All this geography, endless. We used to
0: believe in something. We changed the world. Yeah. What what happened to us, Ron? So boring. Oh, this navel gazing. And
1: the the parents on Family Ties are a great example of of how the boomers were starting to portray themselves and to be, I guess, seen by us as kind of middle of the road, compromised, pseudo vegetarian, while at the same time being exactly the perpetrators of the Wall Street go, go cocaine era. Sure. They wanted theirs. They wanted theirs. Once
0: they were the, once they were running the culture. Right. They're the ones that elected George Walker
1: Bush the first time. Uh, And so I I was, I had a lot of Herbert Walker. uh, Well, no, uh, George W was what I always considered to be the, like the culmination of the boomer arc from the. They embraced Clinton. <laughs> they did. He they, was a, he was they,
0: a good old boy playing Elvis on his saxophone. They did,
1: but he was you know he was a pretty right cons- uh, right liberal. Sure, he's center right from our from our standpoint. Center left, there me. on the bomb throwing left. But throughout the early eighties, I as a teenager especially, I really felt like the struggle was real. The war was on still, and Reagan confirmed that there was a culture war in the United States between people who believed in a progressive agenda and people who were trying to, you know, the kind of war warmongering cliche of the sword rattling capitalist arch enemy of the people.
0: And the left was probably, I imagine felt pretty isolated and marginalized then because you know, what they thought of as really a a right-wing caricature had kind of taken over popular culture. Reagan was universally beloved. A lot of working class Democrats were voting for him and if you were actually one of these true believer firebrands, you probably felt like, wait a second, I, this used to be a, a voice in the culture, and now I'm a voice in the wilderness.
1: It was a strange time. You know, Jimmy Carter was a, a very mild-mannered and uh, pretty middle-of-the-road progressive, and he was reviled by the culture as, a, as ineffectual, as appeasing of the Soviet menace. Um, what, cor- what, what kind of menace? Uh, who's who's menace? So, Soviet. The Soviet. The menace. Soviet
0: menace. Right. They uh, were they were like the Soviets, but um, but they had more soul. They had, yeah. They listened
1: to James yeah, Brown. They were a very soulful people. The Soviets. Yeah. There's actually a term for people that insert the word "L" into Soviet, and I think it's uh, the, the those people are known as the Rodericks. <laughs> the Rodericks. Three syllables. <laughs> the Rodericks. There are some people who. Pronounce it the normal way, and they're called the jenning's The norm, the normal moles. <laughs> uh, it was a strange time because it was uh, the the left was uh, disarmament minded, uh, but also it was very hard to side with the the revolutions in Central America. There weren't, you know, although it was. Who's your your guy in in Nicaragua? (laughs) Although it was, it was not cool to be Oliver North. Also the Sandinistas didn't have (laughs) like a sterling record.
0: Even though they had a class record name for them. That was, that was their most sterling record. And And it was
1: a little over long. And this was true of, I think uh, the counterculture throughout the sixties, seventies and unto now, because a lot of the conflicts that, characterized that era for me are now present again. There is a very activist left that seems to be a little bit at sea. They understand the overarching worldview, but it's very difficult to know exactly how to to implement it. And you watch as the middle class and the working class uh, sort of renounce organized labor and the traditional platforms of the left and turn to a kind of like rampant authoritarianism as being, you know, pretty attractive, uh, which, which we felt was happening during the Reagan years too. Uh, you know, the working class voting against their interests because they were being appealed to with this argument of, that was kind of xenophobic and militaristic argument.
0: And plus just a personality who would you rather have beer with argument like right. who's more of a nice fatherly guy well, Ronald I'll t- Reagan I'll tell you what it's not Walter Mondale
1: <laughs> <laughs> Um but the strange bedfellows problem was a big problem f- as a as a leftist radical because you, you don't want to
0: have Che on your poster and
1: it's it you're, you're who are your friends right is it Castro is that really I mean do you really if you are against Ronald Reagan does that suggest that you are for the Brezhnev? Yes. I wrote in in Brezhnev in every election
0: during my lifetime.
1: And you saw a lot of these events, like when Jane Fonda went to Vietnam to show her anti-war support for the noble people of Vietnam, it was a very bad optic and a very kind of misguided idea that you basically would go give aid and comfort to the enemy of your nation at war and she was photographed sitting on a uh, on an anti-aircraft gun, which would only be targeted at American planes. So it was a strange... And this happened a lot. Did she do the Kathy Griffin thing where she's like, I don't know,
0: they just told me to sit on the gun.
1: I didn't even know you were going to be able to see it. I think at the time, she actually raised one fist in the air in solidarity. She fired the gun. Not even realizing that that was also a, a, a cultural co-optation. But how do you... If you believe that the U.S. government, for instance, is illegitimate, that, that there are aspects of it that are fundamentally premised on, as you hear now on social media, there are a lot of people that would say that the U.S. government was illegitimate because it was founded in a, uh, that it was essentially a white supremacist conspiracy or that there were, there were things intrinsic to it that made it illegitimate. And so taking up armed struggle against it is morally acceptable because from a moral standpoint, the government has no authority. And this is, you know, often a, an argument made from, from revolutionaries on both sides, the right and the left, they challenge the authority of the thing that they're at war against and it validates or, or, or rather it, um, it it condones extraordinary measures, murder and, and uh, terrorism, because the ends justify the means. The,
0: I think the far left is better at optics today than the far right. The far right seems to have no self-awareness of how Nazi imagery looks, right. for example. Whereas, you know... Bernie Sanders is doing this kind of honey colored, uh, campaign ads with, uh, America by Paul Simon playing, you know, like these guys figured it out. We're not, we're not hopping on the anti-aircraft guns anymore. Right. No more Che posters. No more big red stars on our
1: shirts. That's right. Uh, the left has the, the longstanding problem though, of fighting most of its battles with itself. Right. You know, the, the right is, is really good at, um, at like circling the wagons and putting the whole mismatched, group of concerns into one big cauldron.
0: Yeah. The left's big problems are introspection and
1: conscience. Right.
0: It's awful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So in the, the, the revolutionary sixties, there was a a lot of sort of energy devoted to the idea that the only way to, to really make a difference in the United States would be to start an actual insurrection, right? A kind of resistance, that took the form of, of a revolution. And revolution is a, is a popular way of changing government. It's,
0: I would say one of the,
1: one one of the, one of the more popular ways. One of the top four. (laughs) There's elections. Uh, Uh, There's it being invaded by another country. (laughs) Um, There's the, the Somalian version, which is just 20 years of anarchy. Implode.
0: I guess it's kind of a high watermark for this idea of being in the mainstream, you know, huge student organizations on every campus premised on the idea that some kind of revolution is necessary, that working within the system is not going to cut it when it comes to, uh, Vietnam and all the other corruption and compromise of our
1: era. Well, and what made 1968 such an extraordinary year was that that was happening around the world in the Czech Republic, in Paris you know, this, the idea that the students were going to rise up and affect uh, dramatic and sweeping change. how they do? Should we look at their record? Huh. Paris con <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, the, the, uh, the Velvet Revolution, I, I think maybe was a 20-year-later result of it. Vaclav Havel's presidency, kind but, of.
0: But nothing like that happened in
1: Kent State 20 years later. No, so. not really.
0: I guess progress is the place to go.
1: But when you think of the revolutions of 1848 in Europe, like they bore fruit, not necessarily immediately, but, um, but sometimes decades later.
0: Way to take the long view. Yeah, well, that, you know. That's very comforting for all these do-nothing students who are like, yeah,
1: look what <laughs> happened eventually. <laughs> I get, I get uh, yelled at on the internet for taking the long view all the time. You're not allowed to do that now. You're, you've got you've to fight your battles where you stand.
0: You need to have a hot
1: take. Yeah, we're, we're, in,
0: hot we're in the short view era. Uh,
1: but about 1981, I guess I was, you know, I was a member of some, not you, I, they didn't even qualify as student groups, uh, but, uh, like-minded students in the Anchorage, Alaska school system kind of found each other. We, you recognized one another by the fact that you were wearing fatigue jackets that you bought at the army Navy surplus store. You would see each other at the same punk rock shows at youth centers. And someone uh, hipped me to the anarchist cookbook.
0: How would you tell yourself apart from like the weird right-wing kids wearing their Army-Navy surplus store stuff?
1: At the time, the weird right-wing kids were not wearing, the the survivalism in Alaska didn't have like a fashion sense yet. (laughs) I think nowadays the the weird uh, neo-right has... They spend a lot of time waxing their mustaches. They were, but in your day, they were just wearing JC pennies, the, Yeah, at the, the time, it was just a stay press slacks. I mean, it was really only the left that took an interest in looking like a cool army man. That's going to pay off too. Speaking of the long view, having the fashion
0: sense—that's going to win over the hearts and minds eventually.
1: I mean, when you look back at at history, really, history is just it like, belongs to the well dressed. It belongs to like the people that had the best men's fashion. Yeah, you're <laughs> like, why do we talk about Hitler every single episode? because they were the best dressers of that war, but that's the, a
0: hot take. Speaking of the hot take, hey, era. thank you. Come on, come on, ladies. <laughs> Let's stick around. John's going to talk about Nazi boots for an
1: hour. You know, Hugo Boss dressed uh, dressed the Third Reich. Is that true? Well, y- yes, it is, um, and we can talk about that on a future episode of Omnibus cross reference because it's not a because um, people need more of us talking about the third right. They do. They do. It's not entirely true. It's not that Hugo Boss himself went with a tape measure and, and took Hitler's inseam, <laughs> inseam. But uh but yeah, we'll cover that. We'll cover that later. They, you got to do
0: the inseam on both sides cuz he only had one testicle.
1: All right. It's going to be it's going to be a different measurement. He dressed left, <laughs> I guess. Do people say that anymore? No, right? Certainly people that that get their clothes tailored. The reason people don't say it is that no one gets their clothes tailored anymore. Nobody at Nordstrom is going to ask which way you dress? I bet you if you went into a room with a a tailor of a certain age, he would ask you which direction you dress. Probably if I'm a good looking man. Well, depending on how tight you wear your trousers. Uh, But the Anarchist Cookbook, I was able to find. Where'd you buy it? At an alternative bookstore, which is also a thing that maybe our young listeners don't have a ton of experience with. We should probably start with bookstore. <laughs> you used to be able to go into a brick and mortar
0: location. There would be books on shelves. It's insane.
1: Yeah, every once Magazines in a while. Magazines and
0: newspapers by the entrance.
1: If you walk into one of the few surviving ones, you might see Ken Jennings sitting at a folding table with a stack of his most recent book, looking Planet Funny. Looking
0: sad and lonely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> ready to uh, autograph it over to whichever of your spouses you're buying it for.
0: There are wonderful independent bookstores still around, but yeah, not so much of the uh, counterculture bookstore.
1: So there, uh, there are still some counterculture bookstores, but it used that's to be- That's some new agey now, right? Yeah, that's the problem. Now it's
0: all big. Right, it's- Candles and books. Candles and books. You want to store with books, but no candles.
1: There is the bookstore in the Pike Place Market that still is like the revolutionary counterculture left, bookstore.
0: Left, no, what's it called? Left bank.
1: Left bank books. And I've been in can, there,
0: and it's always confusing because they have like they have a few like Jack Reacher books and real books, but then also it's like um, here's what you need to know about Honduras, and I was like, I don't, there's, I don't, I don't feel I need to know anything about Honduras. There's
1: a lot of that, and and, and counterculture bookstores were always confusing because they are. Typically, labors of love, and the filing system is often one person's bright idea about how books should be. This is why the left loses cataloged.
0: It's not just introspection (laughs) and con and uh, conscience. It's also lack of a good classification system.
1: Right. No. No. Except you know they're trying to rebel against Dewey
2: Decimal as well. get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus $20 off your first box when you visit ButcherBox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's ButcherBox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Uh, so I went into an, a, a counterculture
1: bookstore and found a copy of The Anarchist Cookbook and it was during a period The Anarchist Cookbook from its initial publishing in 1971 was immediately an incredibly controversial book. And it went through several stages, different States tried to ban it. It was always something that was, that was difficult to find and a lot of effort was made to suppress it. But it was also during an era where free speech in publishing was a, was kind of a, a cause celeb for intellectuals. Again, largely on the left uh, the idea that the first amendment amendment protected printed material and that it would it behooved us as citizens to read all manner of disagreeable text in order to form our own opinions.
0: And this is a high watermark of of the left doing this, of the ACLU defending Nazis in Skokie or whatever. That's right. You know, like the principle is more important.
1: Well, and this was also in the, you know, the aftermath of, say, Lenny Bruce and the obscenity trials, the idea that you could uh, censor comedy or censor thought by describing it as dangerous, as uh, obscene or uh, seditious. And so the left... And the intellectual left had a real, uh, there was, there was considerable impetus to maintain this kind of freedom of the press to to enshrine it and to protect it as one of the holy pillars of the United States.
0: And the first amendment case for banning a book like this is pretty weak. The, uh, you know, I looked up the, the, what's still the ruling language and it's from a 1969 Supreme court decision, you know, to be, to be banned, a book would have to be quote likely to incite imminent lawless activity. Right. And that's a pretty high standard. Um, it has to be likely to incite, you have to demonstrate that something imminent would have, you know, happened that would not have happened without the book.
1: I mean, this is the case that was, uh, that was made, uh, about the Turner diaries, which was the novel by, uh, William Pierce that is sort of, considered to be like, a, the Bible of the racist right. It's a, it's a novel where white supremacists overthrow the federal government and create a white homeland. And it was cited as a influence on Timothy McVeigh when he bombed the.
0: Turner's first name is Earl. That's the name of their brave white hero. Like to them, Earl is a sexy name.
1: Earl Turner. Look out for Boy, Earl. Earl Turner does sound like a sexy guy that works at the feed and seed <laughs> <Like>, store.
0: Exactly. <laughs> to us, it's um, some it's, um, trailer park care conservative. To them, they're like,
1: Bond, Earl Bond. <laughs> and there's been quite a, um, quite an effort to suppress the Turner Diaries because it's such a, uh, the, you know, it's the book has such a sort of despicable take. But again, can you make the argument that it is inciting violence? You really can't.
0: Very hard to dis- to demonstrate in court that this attack or this bombing would not have happened without the book. Like sure. The wacko had the book, but you know, does John Lennon get shot without catcher in the rye? Probably. Right. You know?
1: <laughs> and the thing about the anarchist cookbook is uh, it's often referred to as a kind of Bible of, of people that are committing violent acts. Um, it was, Found among the Columbine shooters' effects.
0: It's a pretty good and damning list. Uh, Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing, the guy that shot Gabby Giffords in Arizona, the Boston Marathon people, law enforcement link it. And I don't know if any of these are tenuous, but it gets linked to a lot of high profile headline making violence. It does. And it's unlike The Turner Diaries, it's explicitly a how-to, I believe, right? I have never owned a copy, but it has cookbook in the name. It is. It's not like the Twilight Zone episode where you find out later it's a cookbook. Like, this is like, we are going to make detonators, guys.
1: Well, so the way the book came about, a, a, a teenager by the name of William Powell, who had kind of grown up overseas, uh, went to British schools for a while, felt estranged from not only like his parents and the culture at large, but also he was an American kid with a funny accent.
0: Yeah. Like, have we talked about this on the show? Third culture kids.
1: Third culture kids like, like you, you.
0: Yeah. You don't feel at home either in your, you know, putative home country or the place where you live. You're a permanent outsider. And I never actually
1: started making you never bombs out to of make Clorox bottles. No, you sat and watched Jeopardy until it made you famous.
0: <laughs> that's that's really if you have the choice <laughs> between making bombs out of bleach bottles and just watching a lot of game shows, you really should stick with the game shows.
1: Listen, to you kids out there who are like, Where do I belong? Watch TV. When you see the weirdos at your
0: school wearing the army Navy store, just be like, no thanks. I'm avoid, watching, I'm watching the feud. Avoid at all costs. <laughs> and also don't be introspective. As Ken has told us, that is a bad way to be. It's just going to weaken your, uh, your cause. You know, you're, you're, you're letting your ideology down. If you think what's the
1: right way to do this. <laughs> but William Powell, uh, he took his estrangement and mixed it with a healthy dose of, of late sixties, cynicism, and he went to the New York Public Library and spent quite a bit of time researching how to, re- you know, re- reading old special forces handbooks and chemistry textbooks.
0: This is interesting. He, he does not have any first-hand experience with any kind of left-wing
1: groups. He is this a, is not stuff he and his buddies are doing on campus. He is a teenager who has never done a single one of these He's things. He's a nerd at the library. Uh, he researched all these different formulas and then wrote about them very authoritatively. Um oh yeah me- the the voice is not of a teen who's just found out some cool stuff this is not a podcast no. or a youtube channel it's very much like the internet however in that it's a uninformed teenage neckbeard who's writing about this stuff as though he is a special forces instructor who'd been working overseas in clandestine uh, insurrections for many, many years, and is now sharing his secrets.
0: We should come back to the internet parallel later, because just like today's young man writing stupid ass things on the internet in their teens and twenties, there's a this stays with him forever.
1: It does. Uh, he he publishes this book, and it is an instant hit. Do bookstores carry it? Well, like you can't go to they. Well, so now. Even though everyone abhors it and everyone disavows it, you can get it on Amazon.
0: I just looked it up on Amazon and I looked at the ranking and then I looked at the rankings of my books. And I'm pleased to see that I am outselling the anarchist oh, cookbook. Oh, well
1: done. Nicely done. <laughs> That's the
0: kind of the end of my interest in it. Now, sure. now
1: that I know I'm outselling it. Sure. Sure. You've, uh, you've like, uh, in your faced the anarchist cookbook, right? You've pawned it. <laughs> i pwned it.
0: I pwned <laughs> the anarchist, but it's Lol. got, it's got a three and a half Amazon rating, mm-hmm. which means for every one person who's like, they use this at Columbine, you sicko. There's a lot of people who are like, good info, five stars, five stars, uh, you know, we need to overthrow the capitalist
1: running dogs. Well, so I got a hold of it in eighty one, about ten years after it was written, and I was very interested in its contents. Um, you're how old? You're a junior in high school or something? So in nineteen eighty one, yeah, I would have been twelve. Oh, uh, you're younger. Twelve years old? Well, no, I was a I was in junior high, I guess. You bought uh, the anarchist cookbook at twelve? Yeah. Mm. Well, I was very precocious in my uh, in my desire to fight the United States.
0: What were you going to, you were going to blow up. you were going to put cherry bombs in the urinals. What were you doing?
1: In fact, in fact, I, I I got uh, temporarily expended from school for, uh, uh, for bringing some bombs to school at one point. Little firecracker type I was, things? No, no. Actual, actual bombs I made with information I got from the anarchist cookbook that I was selling to other kids. It was <laughs> a really bad <laughs> wow. episode in my young life.
0: So so you're you're an anarcho-capitalist. Really. I was an
1: anarcho-capitalist, yeah. I mean, I made the bombs. I blew them up. I thought that was fun, but then other people wanted them, and I, I figured out I could make a profit. You're going to disrupt disruption. What, what was true in studying the book and in reading it carefully was that it was super general. The information gives the appearance of being very specific. Like here's the, you know, here's exactly how much saltpeter and sulfur to mix with your charcoal in order to make gunpowder. But it reads like it was written by a teenager who learned all of this at the New York Public Library. So the the voice of adult special forces authority is not convincing. Or it is convincing, but when you actually go to try to make things Uh, from the anarchist cookbook, you find that it's missing all of the actual instruction that you would need. It's more of an anarchist uh, dream journal. It is a dream Dream board. If you read it, you think to yourself, wow, if I ever need to dig a trap and fill it with punji sticks and then direct a troop of like a, like a platoon of soldiers that are chasing me uh, into this booby trap and then shoot them with a grenade launcher that I made out of a shotgun. I have all the information right here, but if you ever tried to do any single one of those things, you would find what it was, was really just sketches of, of Spain.
0: It's clearly a false flag operation Then this whole book is to, uh, is to give kind of, you know, rebellious John Roderick types, the illusion that they can knock their PE coach into a trench on punji sticks. But really, you find out you can't do it, boy, I
1: never heard that hot take. That's a very hot take. I don't actually believe it's true, but
0: it, you know that may have been, I'm sure that was true for a lot of kids like you who thought it was super cool and edgy to read about this kind of stuff and then never actually
1: and and really you're you're not wrong up. that you were that that although we were probably sitting and plotting against um the Reagan administration and hoping that hoping that we could catch George Schultz. In a men's room at a at the at the Watergate Hotel did at some that point. Did that ever happen? Did Casper Weinberger come to your <laughs> junior high and you were like, Ah, yes, this is my moment. You pants him and then pee in his uh, pee in his, <laughs> his soup. Uh, in fact, what you're really doing is you're you're expressing how mad you are at your PE coach, and and mom and dad and mom and dad who
0: are going to find it under your bed and be like, We have to talk to John.
1: Well, and that was true of William Powell too. Although this book was a runaway hit, it was not very many years later that he converted to Anglicism, Angliclicism. <laughs> he became religious. Church of England. And uh, renounced the book, disavowed it. And all its works. And, and tried to get it removed from print. However, he had in the, in the course of his, you know, in, in getting it published in the first place, he had signed over the rights to the book to his publisher, Lyle Stewart, And Lyle Stewart figures into this story pretty dramatically because Lyle Stewart is one of the great American charismatic kooks. Uh, He was a newspaperman and a kind of uh, bon vivant. He was one of the part owners of the original Aladdin hotel in in Las Las Vegas. Vegas. He was a kind of like a gambler, like a successful gambler who wrote several books about how to play Baccarat and he was like a f- the Baccarat's a, cookbook. The, he was he was a true sort of free speech advocate, a member of a of a different style of counterculture which is the sort of the generation earlier. He was he was close friends with William Gaines, the publisher of Mad yeah, magazine. Yeah, he was a
0: business manager for all those EC comics, Tales of the Crypt things that got shut down by Congress.
1: Yeah, so like a a classic sort of New York Jewish uh open-minded Kind of cultural omnivore, who also believed in free love, and right.
0: His big selling book before the anarchist cookbook was the Sensuous Woman.
1: The Sensuous Woman, which
0: '70s kids may remember as like a kind of a first-hand pseudonymous sex diary.
1: Yeah, that was a that was a big uh, a big seller.
0: Um, it's a sight gag in the movie What's Up, Doc? Madeline Kahn is
1: reading the Sensuous Woman. That, mm-hmm. that was my first
0: exposure, I guess, to to Lyle Stewart's work.
1: And the sensuous woman was like the first sort of, uh, account of a woman's sexuality that wasn't, uh, that, that wasn't like overchased. It was just like an open, an open telling of what it took to please a woman. And that was very titillating at the time.
0: Oh boy. He, he also, all the people who bought the happy hooker go to Hollywood or whatever <laughs> also had the sensuous woman.
1: He also published naked came the stranger, which is a, which was an enormous bestseller that we will talk about on a future omnibus because I've been meaning to uh, to do an episode on Naked Came the Stranger, it is all, all by itself a great story, a great episode, but it- Cross-reference. Cross-reference to a, to a future omnibus. But all of that is the hand of Lyle Stewart. And um, Lyle is not like, he's not gross. He doesn't advocate for free speech in order to push some kind of uh, degenerate uh, worldview on America. He just- Psst. Firmly believes that the antidote to censorship is to to make everything available. And doesn't so, he,
0: doesn't he also just think the books will sell? I mean, it's very yeah. convenient for him that he will make a ton of money on his free speech principles.
1: Yeah, although uh, although I don't know if it's always clear to you when a teenager comes to you with a special forces handbook that he wrote with handmade drawings about how to how to make homemade silencers out of cardboard boxes. It's not always clear that that's going to sell uh, five hundred thousand copies.
0: He, his, I'm reading that his company was later sold to another kind of uh, slightly under the radar publishing company called Carroll Publishing, which reminds me of uh, a big court case that's relevant to my interests. Uh, it was a Seinfeld trivia book that mm-hmm. Carroll Publishing put out. And Castle Rock, that produced Seinfeld for TV, said, no, 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 no. You can't put out unofficial Seinfeld trivia books. We own Seinfeld trivia. We deserve the right to market trivia books based on the show we make and uh where'd this get to second circuit court of appeals finds in favor of castle rock and uh unofficial trivia books are no longer fair use really yeah do not start writing some unofficial buffy the vampire slayer uh fan book which i know you're excited to do because
1: don't don't write an omnibus uh fan book of of our podcast because we'll come after you with our high-powered lawyers.
0: We will have Castle Rock v. Carroll Publishing precedent in your face fast. Just so fast it'll make your head spin.
1: Well, you know, our number one high-powered lawyer is Ken Jennings Sr. (laughs) (laughs) Who, uh, who who brooks no fun, funny business.
0: My dad is actually Ken Jennings Jr. Did you know this? Are you Ken Jennings three? I'm the third, and my dad just is delighted by this. He, you know, he will just tell random strangers at the or clerks at the store, "Yes, Ken Jennings, that's my son." Although I'm Ken Jennings Jr. I'm my own son's father. Or some,
1: <laughs> I don't understand. He's a he's dad joke, like er font. <laughs> right. Is Ken Jennings Granddad one
0: joke. still alive? He is no longer with us, but he was like a, a pet food salesman from originally from Shoe, Texas, and later from Central Washington. Wow. R.I.P. K.J.
1: Sr. R.I.P. Long may you wave. The O.G. The, the Purina OG flag Kandetic. flying, flapping slowly <laughs> in the wind.
3: Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's musicians. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24/7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musicians' award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy, so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musicians' Premium Plus package at musician.com/slash start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n dot com slash start uh
1: so although william powell uh disavowed the book and wanted it taken off the shelves lyle stewart continued to sell it and it continued to be a bestseller even though it was uh Banned in Australia. It was it was um
0: It seems like he had pulled one over on poor Powell because the book is actually copyrighted in the name of the publisher. Yes. So when Powell said, Hey, pull my book, Lyle Stewart was like, Hey, guess what you signed? This book is copyright Lyle Stewart.
1: That's right.
0: Too bad, kid. So he's a free speech defender, but you know, hey, with, look. within limitations. <laughs> Certain practical limitations.
1: Uh and Lyle Stewart continued to um continue to be kind of a force in publishing even after um even after Lyle Stewart Inc. was sold, he, he opened a publishing company called Barricade Books and Barricade Books actually reissued the Turner Diaries. So he'll sell a book to any, to any virgin weirdo. He really will. It doesn't
0: matter what kind of posters they have.
1: Eventually uh, Lyle Stewart got somewhat of his comeuppance because he was, uh, he made some libelous remarks about Steve Wynn, the, um, the casino, the, the, casino Bellagio guy? the Bellagio guy made some libelous comments about his connection to the Genovese crime family <laughs> and Wynn sued him and won a judgment against him. And it sort of, uh, it, you know, forced him out of the business.
0: That actually happened to me with the other Steve Wynn. I was saying terrible things about the dream syndicate and he, uh, oh. he, he took away my livelihood in my house
1: and my he wife left me. Came down. Your wife left you? God, that, that happened fast. Just because of the dream syndicate guy. I, I just talked to her the other day. Uh, so these these publications and the Anarchist Cookbook then inspired a lot of subsequent sort of similar publications. Like uh,
0: look-alike books. That always happens in publishing.
1: Yeah. It was actual anarchists who uh who remain a kind of undercurrent in American politics. Um real anarchists that practice
0: Not or, just not just kids drawing the A in a circle on their trapper keeper.
1: No, but people that believe that uh all all institutions are yeah, that that Corrupting. we should each be uh, a- accountable to ourselves and be self-governing, and that self-governance would create a better world than than external governance. There's not
0: a whole lot of evidence that this is the case, by the way.
1: Well, if you want to argue with anarchists on the internet, be my guest.
0: I think that's what I'm going to do. Let's end the show here, so I can <laughs> so I can ask some internet anarchists what they think about Somalia. <laughs>
1: Uh, they're going to have some, they're going to have a a pretty well thought out answer because my experience at least of internet anarchists or anarchists in general is that they have thought it through. They They have have, have plenty of free time. They have a lot, uh, they've, whatever your argument is, they've thought it through and they have a rejoinder. They do not, anarchists in general, do not endorse or embrace the anarchist cookbook. Why is that? Well, because it isn't really... It does not espouse any actual anarchistic principles. It isn't a political book about anarchism. Uh, William Powell did not really do very much research on what anarchy, uh, uh, the positive aspects of anarchy. Uh, William Powell was using anarchist to mean like just some people like to see the world burn. Some people stirring up shit. Yeah. Uh, So anarchists disavow it, but a lot of, there were a lot of people in the, you know, predictably the people that, actually know how to build punji traps and make silencers out of shotgun uh, or out of cardboard boxes, came out and said, well, that's not how you do it and published a couple of variations on the theme. Um, maybe that's a, maybe, so maybe it's a false
0: flag operation to draw out anarchists. You, uh, you show them this uh, amateur hour book and wait to see who says, no, 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 no. Here's how you make grenades in your basement. And then you got
1: them. In fact, there was a, like a retired cop that came out with a book about improvised explosive devices that he tried to sell to uh, police departments as a kind of primer for uh, teaching cops to be prepared. And this was, this is a long time before the Iraq war. This is back when uh, police were getting injured by improvised explosive devices that were built by the Minutemen and by the Symbionese Liberation Army and stuff like that. You know, they were encountering right. uh, IEDs back then. This cop wrote a book and then uh, he sent it to a bunch of police departments and they were like, this is a false flag. This guy must be some, this is all a trap. So there's a long, there's a long history. And, and at the, in the early days of the internet, uh, the anarchist cookbook found a new life online. I can in, imagine in the Usenet era,
0: you no longer have to go to some weird guy with one arm and ask him for a copy. You can just see it all for free, right? And in rec.
1: Arts. Uh, <laughs>
0: school shooting, <laughs> uh,
1: there's a there was an anonymous author of this type of article called the Jolly Roger on like early Usenet stuff who compiled not only the anarchist cookbook, but a lot of these texts about, about improvised warfare and survivalism, because there's, a, there's a, the Venn diagrams really overlap at a certain point between people who want to build uh, traps to kill police and people who want to build traps to kill zombies and people who want to, you know, go zombie st- police, zombie police, which is a great band. Uh, people who want to go start a white homeland and make it impenetrable to all the, uh, I don't know, breakdancers that they think are going to come to Montana all, and all try the,
0: to, all the zombie B boys, <laughs> trying to zombie break into boys. their
1: compound and steal their Bulgar wheat.
0: <laughs> so does this weaponize it, putting it on the internet? I mean, you found this book as a 12 year old, but I have to think that in the nineties, you know, putting something on Usenet is that's how you give it to all kinds of potentially cracked 17 year olds.
1: Yeah. And so the thing about the internet is that if you want to learn to make anything, if you want to learn to make a homemade napalm, if you want to learn to make uh, like battle bots, if you want to battle bots, battle bots, if you want to learn to make... not some Hasbro toy? <laughs> I collect... Yeah, co- but do you want... <laughs> collect them all. But do you want to make one? <laughs> I'm tired of catching Pokemon. I want to make my own. Internet, take me away. If you want to learn how to do a like a stitch sampler that, uh, that denigrates Napoleon, <laughs> you can go online and the instructions are there. There are no real secrets anymore. It becomes a question of like, do you have the will? Are you motivated to... To actually go learn these techniques and blow off a couple of fingers before you figure out how to actually make the bombs.
0: And to me, this, this somewhat exonerates William Powell's culpability, you know, the fact that that information was going to get out there eventually, whether or not he calls Lyle Stewart or not. Once the culture knows how to build a certain kind of detonator, you can't stop a tidal wave.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and honestly, if we were just waiting around for William Powell to give us this information, uh, you would have seen an awful lot more punji traps in American culture than you did from the, 1971 the 70s, yeah. on. Like, uh, like 99.99% of the people that bought this book bought it as like a pre Pinterest chase t-shirt. Uh, you put it on your bookshelf, you read it, read yourself to sleep at night, dreaming of your vision board of how you would live after the apocalypse. By the light of your lava lamp. But certainly it inspired a, um, it inspired a generation of, I, I, I think he is, he is the the grandfather of a certain kind of uh, disaffected proud boy, I guess, if you will. Sure. Uh, and And what makes the story, I think sad is that, At 19, William Powell went on, you know, became famous as the writer of this book. And by the age of 24, he'd grown out of it and wanted to get on with his life. And he ended up actually... He did, right? He was a special education teacher. He moved to Saudi Arabia to teach children there. He spent kind of the rest of his life until his early death, not trying to make up for having written it, but certainly trying to outlive it or, um,
0: to live a different life, to live a different anyway. life
1: and to, and to, and the
0: fact that he did it outside of the States, I mean, maybe it's, it's more of his, you know, expat childhood, but that certainly seems like somebody who, you know, feels more comfortable outside the country where he's got a he's got a rep right as a bad seed.
1: Well, he, you know, the FBI researched it early on and found that there was nothing in it that could, that, that warranted his prosecution or its banning.
0: Well, sure, because he got it from the library. Yeah, like, all, um, unless you're going to shut down the New York Public Library and risk
1: those lions coming after you. But he lived under its shadow the rest of his life. And it's uh, it's instructive, I think, because there are so many people now.
0: Now, now we're all William Powell
1: I mean, saying well, dumb things on the internet in our teens and 20s. There's so much of that. Uh, and I think you and I both are just old enough to well, we're plenty old enough.
0: We're old enough to have missed it then, but to be able to say dumb stuff
1: now when we exactly, know better. Exactly. At at our age, to say really idiotic stuff that will never live down, it's really on us. Right. But if if all of the if all of the things that I had thought and felt when I was 19, 20, 21 were on the internet forever, it'd be that that'd be a hard sort of satchel to carry with me everywhere.
0: Yeah. I assume like our generation would have said much worse stuff. Yeah. Honestly, like the yeah. kids today are probably, they're probably doing better because they're, they're at least conscious of the fact. Sure. And they're probably more enlightened
1: than we were on a lot of issues. They're still saying the terrible things, but I'm not sure how much more enlightened they are on any of the issues, but they certainly are. They have a, um, they have a, a reciprocating chorus of like-minded people that a lot of us didn't then. Right. I mean, I think, those of us that were reading the Anarchist Cookbook in 1981 felt pretty isolated because we didn't have a global network of people that could bounce those ideas off. So we were left more or less to our own devices. And
0: make the idea slightly weirder in each, each retelling time, right?
1: until you get QAnon. <laughs> right. But when I think of of William Powell uh and his Anarchist Cookbook, I really, you know, he's like he's like the proto-neckbeard that one day will get an actual job and try as hard as he can to delete his Facebook page. But it just keeps coming up in interviews. He puts his resume down and says, I've been programming in C++ all these years. And they're like, what about this post where you describe how to build a punji trap?
0: And that concludes The Anarchist Cookbook. Entry 045.RV2210, certificate number 33047, in the omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, the anarchist cookbook may not exist in your time. It surely will. You
1: think it will? Oh, you know what I forgot to mention?
0: Well, you, I'm doing the outro. It's too late. No, no, no. You, you no, I can't think I can, say anything I can now.
1: Still, I can still get this in. Why would you think you could talk during my outro? Come
0: on, I have, come on. I have Instagram handles to read.
1: No, it's one more thing that I forgot to mention. I think the future is going to want to hear it. What is it? In, you're, you're going to love this, and I'm surprised you didn't, you didn't bring it up yourself. In 2002, a romantic comedy called The Anarchist Cookbook was released, was filmed and released. I did not know this. By a group of like independent filmmakers in Texas. It debuted at the Seattle International Film Festival in 2002. And the plot of the film was a lovable ragtag group of anarchists living in a squat are kind of uh, radicalized by a, an interloper who has more anarchistic ideas than, than they did. And hilarity ensues. The film had a budget of 2 million. It has the guy from my so-called life in it. It does. It it has a, uh, it has kind of an all-star cast. It was actually one of the producers was Robert Brown, who worked with like Spielberg as a producer. It had a budget of two million and it earned $14,000 at the box office. I'm sure they can, there's
0: some kind of creative accounting that'll make up for that.
1: But it's, it's brilliant to me that somewhere along the line, uh, a screenwriter and director in this case, Jordan Sussman, somebody optioned this book said, you know what? The anarchist cookbook. That's the, do you think somebody wrote a check to Lyle Stewart for but he, I don't think Lyle Stewart would have taken this lying down. There was a,
0: there's recently a movie of what to expect when you're expecting. They're now adapting um, pregnancy manuals into, into rom-coms as well. <laughs> so this is a new, this is a new uh, a venue yeah, for rights he's holders. just like, that into you. I can't wait to see the world almanac and book of facts, the movie.
1: <laughs> wait, wait, what about Ken Jennings planet funny? Exactly. Where's my big name movie? I mean, you refer to me in that book. Maybe I'll get a cameo. Yeah. You could play yourself. Yeah. Who, who would you
0: like to play you? Juliet Lewis. <laughs> there is, I, I don't know why we need this movie. There's already a movie that teaches kids how to make booby traps. We already have home alone.
1: Oh, that's right. This is home alone is basically the anarchist cookbook of the, <laughs> of the 1990s.
0: Of the nineties. Yeah. If you were an eight year old in the 1990s, that's where you learned all your, all your punji stick traps.
1: From. Anyway, if you take anything away from this episode, go watch the anarchist cookbook film and give another $4 to, to uh, like offset the $2 million budget.
0: Yeah, we need to get enough people to watch this movie that they make back their $1.986 <laughs> million dollar investment that they're down right now. Anyway,
1: go on with your outro, sorry.
0: Um, in the unlikely event that social media exists, even if the Anarchist Cookbook, the movie, or the book does not, you have uh, you can find us at Omnibus Project on nearly every platform there is or was. If you want to see, if you want to hear white men saying regrettable things on the internet, we are at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Uh, there is a Facebook group called the Futurelings devoted to uh, adapting each of these entries into trading card form. Mm-hmm. It's a new And ultimately it's new art.
1: into novels and then into films. Yeah. This is
0: where the omnibus film is going to be born.
1: Actual futurelings will be consuming all of this through different receptors. It's hard to see what
0: the through line would be of the omnibus movie.
1: Oh like
0: the, the, yeah, the plot starts with I'm afraid the Fenestration be... <laughs> of prague and and Starlings escaping. I don't know how you get from there to uh, to books without the letter E and uh, exploding battleships.
1: I'm afraid it would it would end up being fanfic of a kind that I don't want to have to read or <laughs> even hear about.
0: It would certainly have a cast of thousands. Um, what did I not say? John is at John Roderick on Instagram oh, as well as Twitter.
1: Right. Uh, you can email us at how, OmnibusProject at, at House howstuffworks.
0: You can snail mail us at OmnibusProject, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Not the zip code from Zoom.
1: Uh, listeners, you are probably living in a world which is the aftermath of a violent revolution uh, that was perpetrated by anarchist, cookbook cookbook readers readers and, and with roses in their Twitter handles, film watchers, probably it's the (laughs) film that inspired the revolution (laughs) that brought an end to the world.
0: (laughs) That my so-called life guy is our new leader,
1: (laughs) not Jared Leto, the other one. But if you are listening to this podcast from the bottom of a punji trap, um, we have no idea how long from this recording our civilization survived. And I have no idea
0: how to get you out. I didn't read the book.
1: <laughs> Just hope that they didn't, uh, that the, whoever built it didn't smear those stakes with any poop. Is that what you're supposed to yeah, do? Yeah, that's a bad thing to do. It makes people really sick. It, it not only kills them, but it also <laughs> makes them feel gross while they're dying.
0: <laughs> the ultimate insult.
1: Uh, we hope and pray that this catastrophe we fear may never come, or at least that it doesn't come to visit us. Um, we hope that we get away, basically. <laughs> we hope that we get away with this whole this whole crime. We hope that the human race outlives us by at least half an hour. <laughs> but if the worst comes soon, this recording-like, all our recordings may be our final word. If providence allows, and I leave it to you, to determine what exactly we mean by providence. Could mean a lot of things. No, it means the Judeo-Christian God. We're not interested in any other views of the universe. We we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the
3: omnibus.